Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you excellent and interesting content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise more effectively, to leading and managing your own team, to thinking about creative or humanistic ways to do your work, and finally, to build up your skills in scholarly practice. We welcome you to sit back, listen, and enjoy the latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In collaboration with the team at Merit, McMaster's Education Research, Innovation, and Theory program in the Faculty of Health Sciences, we bring you our Good Pie subseries on good practices in education. Our Merit scientists and scholars share their education research expertise with us so we can enhance our own teaching practices. We've included an infographic with each episode to summarize the highlights of our discussion. Join us for a slice of good pie. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Sandra Montero talk about assessment research. She discusses topics such as how she got to where she is today, how to bridge the gap between assessments and cultural values, and some good practices in assessments. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Sandra. It's so good to have you here for our next episode of Good Pie, Good Practices in Education. So before we start, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Great. Thank you, Ruth. And thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here today. Really looking forward to this conversation. So as a bit of introduction, um, I am a scientist. I'm an education research scientist in a program called Merit. Um, I have a PhD in cognitive psychology. And so I try to use that lens to understand really what it takes to change people's knowledge, change people's behavior. And I've I've explored uh, like some specific topics in the past, but uh, at this point, I think I'm branching out to uh, a number of areas where where really the common thing is, you know, changing behavior uh, and understanding attitudes. Great. Thanks, Sandra. And so before we get into our slice of good pie, I'm going to continue on with this food analogy just for a couple more seconds um, at the expense of all of our listeners having to hear. Now, um, I usually like to start off our interview time with some appetizer-like questions. And so before we talk about your topic of assessment, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you and introduce our listeners to who you are. So as an appetizer, what are some of the hobbies or activities that you enjoy outside of the work environment? And are you engaging in any particular projects or activities right now? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And and now you've got me thinking about pie as an appetizer, which um, it could be kind of unusual, but we're heading into the holiday season at this point. So that could happen. Um, In terms of interests outside of work, um, I do have two rather large hobbies, I guess, that take up quite a bit of time. So I love spending time outside. I have a large enough backyard to facilitate that. (laughs) And everyone 
at home knows to kind of leave me alone when I go out to play with dirt. Is what I call it. Um, I'm very happy um, being out there with nature and uh, finding all the worms and uh, just watching everything grow. And then when the seasons change and everyone sort of goes inside, then I spend time creating art, just mixing colors and playing with technique. Um, so I've started creating uh, a few paintings. And I think as most people that do and practice an art as a hobby, they start to build a collection <laughs> of items that they don't have any space for. And, and so I've started to gift some of these um, around the office. And so far, so far, people have said they, they like them, but hopefully, uh, hopefully it's not like the wonky little uh, coffee cup that someone made at summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> that your colleague feels they have to keep on their desk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, um, I do have to say that I have seen your artwork both online as well as in person. And it is fascinating to me that you have such a skill and a talent with art as well. And the pieces that I've seen are uh, acrylics as well as the oil paintings that I've seen online as mm -hmm. well. And, you know, who knows, by the time this episode airs, you may have a whole portfolio that you're going to display online that we can link and have a web, a web page linked to, you know, it's always a possibility. Oh, totally agree. I mean, as education, research scientists have to be really creative about our sources of funding. So I've started to <laughs> think of, you know, GoFundMe pages or, or little like um, craft sales, and that could fund my research. Um, and uh, people have been talking about uh, like one of the journals in our field, academic medicine, I think they routine, routinely put out calls for um, artwork for the cover of their next oh. issue. So um, we'll see if I build up enough uh, momentum to create something good enough for, for one of their calls. Oh, that's great. So you can have an art fund that supports perhaps some research students or scholars, and then also maybe like a monthly food basket for all the products that you've created in the garden. And that can be also another <laughs> funding source as well. Okay, so I don't want to uh, belabor this um, an appetizer analogy too much because we want to get right into our slice of good pie. And today our discussion will focus on your area of expertise or an area of your expertise, and that's on assessment. And so as an introduction to the listeners, Sandra, in what context would this particular topic be relevant for our listeners? Yeah, I think um, any of our listeners would find the topic of assessment relevant. If they're clinician educators, then they have to dedicate quite a bit of time to designing assessments. They have to try to understand assessment data. Um, if they are trainees, then they're always preparing for the next assessment, even if it's informal uh, or if it's a you know high stakes, high stress uh, exam that they have to schedule um, schedule in and pay for in order to get their license. Um, everyone in, in the health professions is certainly very familiar with the topic of assessment. And I can imagine that it triggers a number of um, emotions as well, um, especially, like I said, that stress level. But I, I think it's not just the, the examinees that feel that stress. I do believe that 
the pressure that's put on clinicians to be experts in assessment methods, um, assessment data, and then making decisions, making very um, important high stakes decisions on a daily basis um, using assessment data. I think that can also be uh, cause quite a bit of stress. So I think understanding uh, assessment and all its nuances uh, could be quite relevant to our audience. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been in this world of assessment research for quite a while now, and I never had a chance to ask you what brought you into this area or what prompted your interest in this area. And have you seen your own interests evolve as you've been in this field? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so I'd say what brought me in was a little bit of uh, luck and circumstance, I think. Um, so starting out early uh, in my career, um, as I mentioned, I have a degree in cognitive psychology. So graduate programs in psychology often um, encourage students to spend quite a bit of time refining the art of measurement, um, because there's usually some kind of construct that's being measured in, in psychology. So whether it's through an experiment or a survey, we're all trained to understand what metrics are and what analyses we can use to, to analyze them and then interpret them. Um, the application to the real world sometimes doesn't seem quite there. Our materials are usually very artificial, but um, my first entry into the, the field of health professions education also brought with it a, a role as um, psychometrician and then um, director of research and analysis at Touchstone Institute in Toronto. Um, and this organization has a long history going back to the 1970s when um, I think Ontario particularly wanted to have a pathway for assessing um, medical graduates that were trained outside of Canada. Um, and so this organization has roots in um, the assessment of what people might know as IMGs in, in Canada, but now their focus is competency-based um, assessments of internationally graduated health professions. And, you know, they, they work with um, quite a few health professions regulators. And my role there was to support the design development and um, design development of um, assessments and then like trying to match that to what the regulator was trying to achieve um, and then also conduct the the analysis of the data and help interpret that so they could make make those fair and safe decisions um, about which applicants um, could be kind of considered uh, for practice in, in Canada. So that was my um, first introduction to assessment. And it kind of really propelled me forward to think of how I could use my um, training from psychology and measuring constructs and apply that to this very high stakes world of competency-based assessment. And I'm not sure that I can sum up how my <laughs> perspectives have evolved, but um, Maybe it was because I was so so new to the field. Maybe it was because I was somewhat naive to the complexities of assessing competence. Um, and this was also about the time that the Royal College in Canada had announced shifts towards competency-based medical education. So the, um, the landscape or the tone was 
uh, quite different. Um, and then there I was in the, in the middle of it, trying to learn, but also support the work that was being done at Touchstone Institute, and then also working with faculty at, at McMaster University who were trying to understand what CBME meant and what competency by design would look like um, in their program. And yeah, I'm thinking maybe it was because I was somewhat naive that I just did my best to sort of listen <laughs> to what people were saying and um, what they thought was important. And I realized at some point that I was very, very confused, but it wasn't because of my lack of knowledge or skill. It took a while to, to understand that I was confused because everyone had a different understanding of what competency-based assessment should be. And they were all sort of correct, <laughs> but they weren't sharing necessarily what all their assumptions were. Um, so for sure, my, my appreciation of assessment design and understanding of the complexities has evolved, but um, it's... Hmm. I guess it's it's not that I had a starting point <laughs> to to speak of. Um, it's just that I was thrown right in the midst of of everything. And um, it, in that way, sometimes I do feel like I have a unique perspective um, about what assessment should be. Yes, and maybe even the idea of evolving and uh, assuming a linearity to that wasn't the best way for me to frame that question because what you're describing sounds like it's an expansion and an outward growth and development of greater nuance within your field as well and a greater understanding. Because I know that as you're describing the difficulties with defining assessment, I know that some of the work that we have uh, done very uh, loosely together around clinical reasoning and knowing about your interests in social justice with clinical reasoning, I imagine that those interests or the areas of social, social justice around equity, inclusion, and diversity have also added nuance as well as perspective into your work in assessment as well. Oh, absolutely, Ruth. And um, yeah, I think you've actually kind of summed it up much better than than I did with, with kind of my rambling there. But um, the the social justice aspect, I'm not sure I would have used that word necessarily um, back when I was just starting out. But um, one, um, in, in trying to understand what this uh, field of assessment was all about, I started looking to some of the classic literature and examining, you know, what, what are the recommendations for how you design a good assessment? And there are certain principles that have like historically just been entrenched. Um, so for example, there's the um, association uh, for, for education, research and assessment, and they have a standards uh, document that they they routinely update. They have a, a, a lot of committees and they do a lot of work to to ensure that there are um, guiding principles around um, around assessment. And there are some consistent ideas about assessments having to be fair. There's some you know considerations around um, ensuring equity rather in the way that assessments are offered uh, and who is assessed. And then there are also those those elements of ensuring that the data are reliable or valid. And 
um, you know, when I first started out in this field, I kind of wondered where the fairness had gone <laughs> um, at some at some conversations. Um, there seemed to it seemed to be like people had forgotten about the need to consider what the examinee was being asked to do and and how transparent the um, the assessment design and goals were made to to them. And there was just all of a lot of focus on the psychometrics related to ensuring reliability uh, and validity. That's a that's a great example. And it really does highlight for me how assessment conducted and implemented and researched in a vacuum without recognition of the societal or social variables and in influences as well as the context pieces of the, that assessment can then result in inadequate or ineffective assessment measure or an ineffective assessment approach. So maybe that's a great segue into our your your recommendations for good practices in assessment. So would you like to share that with us? Yeah, I I, I mean, I mean, these aren't practices that I came up with, and and so I think my main recommendation is to to encourage people that are considering designing an assessment is to go back to those basic principles, um, and uh, in you know, focusing on concern over reliability and validity of data is almost like putting the cart before the horse in, in a sense, because the data are what comes out at the end. <laughs> um, and you can't ensure that necessarily till you have some data to work with. Um, but going back to, you know, whether an assessment is feasible, um, considering how much it costs, um, not just to the organization, but also to the examinee, which brings in some consideration of, of fairness. Is it fair to expect them to, to pay that, that fee um, in order to support this assessment? And, and whether the assessment is, is acceptable by the community generally, whether there's been enough transparency built in around how it's designed and, and what it's measuring so that examinees and uh, society can sort of um, accept the results that come from it. Um, and so uh, a good place to start, um, because even those foundational principles are quite complex and it's a lot to consider yes. um, at the beginning, but a really good place to start is to just set a foundation of what the purpose of the assessment is. In my experiences, in different contexts, so at Touchstone Institute, having conversations with different health professions, regulators, um, at the university, having conversations with program directors and chairs of departments, I got a sense that people weren't sharing their idea of what the assessment served, like what purpose the assessment served, that is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was material, if I think of the, the example of um, competency by design, there was the material that the Royal College was putting out, but their material was, was quite generic and it didn't necessarily translate to the needs of individual specialties and individual schools and the resources available to individual program directors. Um, and so it really fell on, on them to translate all of that with no guidance or understanding of assessment design. Um, so I think my, maybe the simplest principle is just 
make sure that everyone involved has a clear understanding of the purpose of the assessment you're about to create and then how that data is going to be used. Um, because another issue that I saw arising was um, attempts to use assessment data in ways that it was not intended for. Um, and I feel like sometimes people would almost be lured in by um, the, the mystery of a large data set and assuming mm -hmm. that because there's so much of it that they could start mining it for a number of questions. And I'd always have to try to caution them and slow them down if I could to say, well, it was designed with this purpose in mind. The questions were designed with this focus. And it would be unethical, really, to try to use the data that came out of that design um, with a different for a different reason. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, nobody wants to then put in the effort to create a new assessment. And so sometimes you've got to negotiate how how you proceed. But um, I think keeping those two two issues clear in 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 mind, and maybe even having it documented, something that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in a university setting, often the people making the decisions, like or the, the people in those roles, there's there's changeover, and so if one program dress, director has has an understanding of how the data should be used, and then they leave that role, that may not get handed over to the next person. Um, so I think a third principle could just be that clear documentation and plan, um, and and understanding that that can have that historical longevity and people can always refer to it um, and, and be their sort of guiding light or <laughs> they can yes. have that, that foundation of how to make decisions going forward. I think the community, the health professions community, I think they, they're aware of all the literature on reliability and validity. And so I feel like we actually need to do a little bit of work to have less focus on that alone um, and, and just have some more clarity around purpose. Um, and hopefully that can impact the fairness of the assessment. Um, something that I saw, for example, when there were conversations around designing assessments of people with international health professions degrees um, is that the the starting point was always that of the Canadian trainee who's been in a Canadian undergraduate program and potentially in Canadian um, internships or uh, rotations or, you know, um, they've had experience in the Canadian healthcare system and working with Canadian patients. Um, and so the values that come with that are almost are quite implicit for them already. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone who's truly lived and practiced and 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 has maybe just slightly different values coming from another country, they they may have the same foundational medical or nursing or or other health professions knowledge, but the context in which they practice is very different. And as is the context of assessment. Mm -hmm. um, so as an example, for some examinees, they would fly in for quite an expensive assessment and it wouldn't be until they showed up uh, to register for the exam that they kind of understood what the exam design was. So I assume our audience 
is familiar with an OSCE, an objective structured clinical exam. But it became, and it became clear to me that there was this one context in which many of the examinees had never seen an OSCE before. <laughs> and, and that would be the first day that they were introduced to one, um, the day they had to complete a high stakes assessment to determine if they could actually practice in Canada. So it, it seems like your first point is to design an assessment that is fit for the purposes that or the objectives that you are assessing. And then connected to this is your second example or your additional example of it, particularly in high stakes situations, we must be attuned to, and, and especially when we have participants in those high stakes exams that are coming from different culture, cultural backgrounds or cultural contexts, there are components in the assessment that we need to be mindful to that perhaps reflect a, a certain Western bias. Is that, is that what you're, you're meaning? Um, yes, I mean, that, that is definitely um, maybe a more efficient way to put it, but I mean, and not Western bias in the sense of like Western culture versus Eastern cultures or, or anything like that. But I think just a, a, maybe even it's just a North American approach to assessment mm -hmm. and, and the traditions and the practices that are common amongst Canadian and, and U.S. Uh, education programs that other um that other people in other countries are just are just not used to. So, mm. like I said, you know, the science behind what they've learned, the practice of in healthcare that they're used to, that might all appear the same on the surface. But there's an art to taking an exam in a Canadian school, and you get a lot of practice when you're in a Canadian school um, to to learn how to succeed at those exams. Um, and so, someone who doesn't have that experience, and this is just one one example of um, thinking of fairness, but people who've trained in a different education program just won't have um, refined that art mm -hmm. uh, for how to succeed at, a, at an exam that's created here. What are some suggestions you would have to help us bridge that gap between recognizing or, or developing an assessment and recognizing that there may be a gap with those that may not uh, have been trained in our particular environments or within our particular cultures that value certain approaches or certain patterns, let's say, of communication, how might we bridge that gap so that that component of the assessment doesn't become a barrier or a factor that excludes individuals unfairly? Um, okay. Yes. So thinking about um, that focus of customizing the assessment, uh, having it be fit to the purpose, and, and maybe I'll leave this to you to interpret, but there, for the same assessment design, perhaps one purpose could be framed as um, that this assessment is important to ensure patient safety. And so we really need to have a very strict standard or a cut score for passing. Um, and the skills that need to be assessed in this exam uh, must be those that ensure the safety of Canadian patients and are uh, in, in a way that's culturally sensitive. 
Um, and so the framing of that is about patient safety. There's a bit of a tone of creating a, a gate and, and only certain people are allowed to go through that gate. Um, and there's also a sense of um, responsibility to ensure that the bar is high enough. Um, you could frame it a different way, uh, such that um, you could start by saying we value diversity. We know that Canada itself is full of many different cultures. We value our immigrant population. We're appreciative of all of the diversity that that brings. And those people will have unique needs, unique patient needs. And so there, there's maybe some strength to welcoming diversity in our healthcare force as well. Um, and recognizing that one source of diversity is through immigrant healthcare professionals. Uh, and we know that there are quite a few of those who are interested in practicing in Canada for any number of reasons. Um, so we could design an assessment to determine really what their strengths are and how that might meet the needs of some of our communities, our diverse communities in Canada. Um, and in and in doing so, consider how we might then um, help them build or, or correct or, or fill in, I guess, the, the gaps that they do have so that they can start serving these communities as, as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so hopefully, yeah, I, I guess I, I said I'd leave it up to you to interpret, but I kind of uh, was was quite explicit in, in, in the different tone and where that might lead you. I, I can... Yes, uh, thanks for that, Sandra, because I'm starting to understand a bit more of how this might be applied in practice too. And tell me if uh, this is an accurate statement or an accurate reflection of what you're saying. So I think that part of assessment is also ensuring that the assessors are appropriately trained to engage in that assessment. And so, am I hearing you correctly? that we then must train the assessors to understand what the purpose, one, what the purpose of that assessment is, but two, also the specific competencies or the core competencies that you are assessing. And so if we look at core competencies very broadly, we know that it, it encompasses knowledge, skills, or attitudes and behaviors. And so even breaking it down for the assessors to know exactly which aspects, uh, holistically or individually competencies we are assessing, and that being an important part of the delivery of that assessment is also the assessor's training. Yes, that definitely um, is an important factor that would, uh, that would be brought up, I think, if you start with that consideration of, you know, ensuring that the purpose is clear. Um, yeah, and and I, hopefully that's an accurate uh, restatement of what you're describing because I'm starting to see some applications to my own teaching practice as well. And thinking through how I approach assessment of, of students and, and learners in various environments in which I teach and needing to consistently take that step back and ask myself, am I evaluating the student on X or Y measure, or am I incorporating other assessment variables into 
that grade that I'm giving the student that are actually not related or not even connected to what I'm saying I'm assessing. So if I'm assessing them on their knowledge around a particular topic, and yet I'm factoring in other aspects like how they presented themselves or how well they spoke or how clearly they spoke, then I, I need to be a bit more thoughtful about mm -hmm. those other components that I'm adding into my overall assess uh, evaluation of that learner. Yeah, absolutely. Not to say that those other considerations are are not important, but um, yeah, just as you said, being mindful that they're there as well and, and could be influencing um, decisions. So depending on what you do think is, is the priority, uh, it's worth it's worth pausing and just having everyone talk, especially the decision makers, talk about what they think the data means and what they think the assessment is supposed to do. Is it a mm -hmm. gateway that only a few should be allowed to walk through? Or is it a way to evaluate a potential workforce that can actually help our community um, and a way for us to um, really value and welcome um, diversity and skills and really learn from others? Yeah. Yes. I'd like to go back to another point that you made and ask you for more thoughts or uh, insights about this, because this is uh, an important point for me that I consider in my own teaching practice as well. And that's around security and higher stakes evaluations and what that entails in terms of the resources. You, you mentioned the example of having individuals make plans to fly here from other places, spend a few days in these high stakes assessments and how those practices are not entire, may not be fair or that we need to be mindful of fairness and equity. And I see some of those examples in my own practice where I'm looking at various assessment uh, measures that we use as well as platforms that we might use. So being more explicit, like with, with COVID in the past few years, we've been increasing our test security by using proctoring software. And I've discovered how without a thoughtful approach to using these various measures for whether it be for security reasons or for uh, these higher stakes evaluations, they can lead to inequities and unfair treatment of individuals. And so could you elaborate a bit more on that, that point? Um, yes, absolutely. I think um, there's, there's no shortage of um, consequences that, that the pandemic has had in terms of opening people's eyes to uh, just a different way of doing things. So the idea that um, a high stakes assessment could be conducted online or virtually or at a distance would probably not have been entertained before. And, um, and I don't know that anyone would have, um, uh, would have argued that it was necessary. I think there was a sense that if, uh, if examinees wanted to challenge an exam, then it's the onus is on them to get themselves to, to the assessment center. Um, and I think that that attitude worked at a time when, um, or time before the globalization and and my you know migration of healthcare workers, 
um, started to really increase. But now that we we do see there's this great need for people, it, and it actually works both ways, that there's Canadians who want to migrate to other countries and they're challenged to meet the standards of that country's healthcare um, uh, practices. And, and we, we know immigrants to this country struggle to get through some of the um, the assessment uh, barriers that we put in front of them. Um, and so considering what virtual assessment uh, designs could offer in terms of creating fairness and, and accessibility, uh, I think it, uh, you know, I think it's really time that we start to explore some of that. Um, I feel like people that might be resistant to exploring what that technology can offer us are, are very concerned about test security and imagine that it's so much easier to um, game the system or cheat on an exam or, um, you know, just pretend to be competent, I suppose. Um, and in that sense, there are a number of assessment design principles that can help. Uh, so ensuring that the format of the exam is maybe not as amenable to cheating. Um, you know, ensuring that the skills, the knowledge, and the attitudes that are being assessed are um, are done so in a way that that could be authentic or genuine, um, uh, and and creating a, a a setting in which I think it's just more difficult for someone to present a, a different version of themselves. I guess so. Um, there's been a lot of work done on um, what people would call open versus closed book exams. And it's that has some relevance to the topic of test security and, and cheating. Um, so presumably in an open book exam, you'd be allowed to do anything that, that you thought you needed to do to help you answer a question. Um, and typically what they find is that in order to create an exam for that kind of setting, the questions tend to be more challenging. Um, we find that in education settings, students are far less prepared for an open book exam, um, partly in part, I think, because they, they're not really taught how to prepare for, for something like that. They don't expect the questions to be so much more difficult. Um, they, they, they might miscalculate how much time it would take them to look up a question or reference a textbook. Um, and by and large, they end up running out of time if they haven't prepared. Um, and it seems that in closed book settings, students have to prepare because they know they can't bring any supports in with them. Um, and students tend to do much better in that setting, knowing that they have to prepare. Um, I think for a high stakes assessment where you're assessing knowledge across a whole program, not just a single course, um, I think we can spend some time really thinking about the design um, and ensuring that, you know, even if someone was to try to bring in an, a, an additional resource or some support, that there's a way to authentically assess the knowledge and, and attitudes and, and skills that they have. And um, I feel like we've because we've relied on the the um, the tradition of sequestering and proctoring, that maybe we've gotten a bit lazy in innovating in assessment design, um, and I, I think we could start to do that right now um, because of the pandemic. Not that I'm trying to find a silver lining in a 
horrible event, but uh, people had to innovate and they had to sort of just jump across that threshold. Um, and it seems that for the most part, things worked out. They were able to collect assessment data and um, they were able to make decisions and students, trainees were able to move forward um, uh, through a program. So I, I think certainly when push came to shove, they, they made it work. And um, I think if we just spend some time thinking about it um, carefully and designing carefully and testing the limits of um, online test security and uh, testing our assumptions about what's possible uh, when it comes to cheating versus really just going towards open book assessments, mm -hmm. let's say, um, then I think we'll make some progress in that in that area of good design and also uh, thinking about fairness to the examinees. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that in your discussion of good practices in education, you're all, you're always going back to the experience of the learner or the experience of the assessee, because I think, you know, it's it bears repeating that we can't lose sight of the person that or the groups or the individuals we're assessing in our assessment development, our assessment delivery, and our training of assessors. So I appreciate that connection and constantly reminding us of the impact to our learners. And so if, if I can summarize the three key points that you've made today, and you can uh, let me know if I've captured these correctly, I've, I've heard from you, designing an assessment that is fit for purpose, also aligning those assessment elements to the core competence or skill that you are assessing. And then also that third component of balancing fairness and equity with the learner or the candidate's experience in that assessment with the need to create assessment measures that are uh, that have integrity, that are secure, that are valid and reliable. Um, would you would you say that that's an adequate summary of the three points that you shared with us today? Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ruth. That is <laughs> that does sound um, yeah like the three things that I tried to highlight. Very much agree. Well, thank you very much, Sandra. It's really nice to talk with you. Uh, same here, Ruth. This was very much a pleasure for me. Thank you for the uh, invitation again. And I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing your future artwork and any mm -hmm. of your bountiful garden harvest once we get into gardening season. Thank you. Maybe I'll be the first example of a self-funded research <laughs> program. <laughs> That's great. Innovations in research funding. That's our next episode. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's M-A-C-P-F-D.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. 
A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.